Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on Orality and Literacy, first broadcast in 1988. Literacy by itself is nothing without orality. Literate traditions exist and are perpetuated by virtue not just of having text, but of having talk about texts. The texts themselves are are extensions of oral discourse. Literacy has to be seen in its oral milieu. Seeing literacy in its oral and its human context is what tonight's program is about. We'll introduce you to an Indian scholar who thinks that the cult of literacy degrades people who can't read or write. What I am worried about is that there are 800 million illiterates in this world. And for those 800 million illiterates, there is nobody to speak. We are speaking as though literacy is responsible for everything, for family welfare, GNP increase, for modernization, for all kinds of things. But I don't think that is correct. I don't think that is correct. We'll talk about the different purposes for which literacy can be used. Literacy has such a mixed history. On the one hand, literacy has been used as an instrument of control, of suppression, of manipulation, of the instilling of an ideology. And on the other hand, it's been used in this illuminative sense, in this way of developing people's rights and their freedoms and, and their rationality and, and their authority and giving them this kind of dignity. And so it becomes very important in the field of literacy, I think, to be very clear about the purposes with which you're doing a thing. You'll meet a distinguished classicist who thinks that primary school should bring back elocution lessons and teach reading and writing only in the context of oral performance. Are you going to deprive infants of the power to crawl and insist they walk at once? You learn to walk through crawling. How you introduce reading on top of oralism, you wed the two together. What is going to be read must first be heard. And finally, we'll consider the effect of the computer on literacy. As in the Middle Ages, the book became a socially dominant metaphor. For 95% of, of people who were lay and couldn't read or write, so now the computer has become, the text composer has become a socially dominant metaphor by which people actually reduce speech to communication themselves to a system, their individuality into a moment on the world screen. Tonight's program, the last of a three-part series, was recorded at a conference held last June at the University of Toronto. It was jointly organized by the McLuhan program and the Toronto Semiotic Circle and it brought together many of the most noted scholars in the field of orality and literacy. David Cayley covered the conference for ideas. He interviewed the participants and based this program on those conversations. Last fall, Southern News released the results of a major 10-month survey of how well Canadians read. The results were splashed across the front pages of newspapers from coast to coast. Five million of us, the study found, are functionally illiterate, and this includes more than a million and a half people who claim to have graduated from high school. The tone of the newspaper coverage was dramatic and slightly panicky. It painted a grim picture, confided the agony of illiteracy, and called for a crusade against it. I read various articles about the survey, but they all seemed to me to have the same problem. 
It was as if illiteracy were a disease, and literacy the cure for it, when administered in the correct dosage by certified professionals. There was no sense that reading and writing take place in the context of human lives and purposes, that people choose to read or not to read. No sense that literacy has disadvantages as well as advantages. No sense that illiteracy might be a positive choice for people who have experienced literacy as a form of oppression. Literacy was treated as an abstract, unquestioned good. Illiteracy as an unquestioned evil. I mention the Southern Survey in particular, not because I mean to pick on it, but because I think its approach is typical. It treats literacy as a thing, and it treats it in isolation. But literacy isn't a thing, it's a relationship, and it's not isolated. It always occurs in context. For example, in the 1840s, a Methodist missionary invented a script for the previously unwritten language of the Cree Indians. This writing system spread through the Cree population very rapidly. There were no teachers, no schools, no pens, nor paper. They wrote with charcoal on birch bark. But writing served their purposes. It kept a dispersed hunting and trapping community in touch. And so, the Cree achieved almost universal literacy in a very short time. The point of the story, I think, is that reading is easy when people use it for purposes that come from themselves. In other words, the meaning of literacy depends on its social context, and this context will determine whether it succeeds or whether it fails. It is only in this light that we can make sense of illiteracy in our own society. Otherwise, it will remain an abstract and incomprehensible problem over which we will continue to wring our hands in vain. How did more than a million and a half people manage to graduate from high school without learning to read? Putting literacy in context means understanding it critically. It means that we must see literacy not as the solution to all other problems, but as the problem itself. What is it? What effect does it have on us? David Olson co-directs the McLuhan program at the University of Toronto, and he was the main organizer of the Orality and Literacy Conference. He credits two scholars who both taught at the University of Toronto with introducing this new critical orientation, Harold Adams Innes and Marshall McLuhan. Before they wrote, he says, the benefits of literacy were unquestioned. An interest in literacy, of course, is very old. Uh, part of the Enlightenment was a concern with literacy and the importance of literacy to modernity and to civilization and so on. But in the uh, 18th and 19th century, the discussions about literacy were always directly connected with discussions of development and prosperity and employment and health and democracy and so on. So that literacy was seen as a critical part of any modern social institutions. So literacy was just thought of as an, a good, something that everybody should strive for, and if everybody achieved, would produce utopia. Now that assumption persisted right into the 20th century, and I think first started to fall to the assaults of people like McLuhan and Innes, who, while not uh, deprecating literacy, pointed out how much uh, could be done through orality. 
In other words, the thing that made literacy seem interesting again in the 20th century was the recognition that uh, the, the most important aspects of social organization and, and thought are tied to speech, not to writing. Now, that's not to say that writing isn't important, but uh, they started to recognize that writing wasn't just a, a good but was a bias, as Harold Innes would have said, and Marshall McLuhan would say too. So the question then was, what kind of a bias is it? What does it uh, help us do? What does it make it difficult for us to do? And to see uh, orality then in a new light. Let me ask, what was Innes's specific contribution here? His view was that uh, changes in the forms of communication altered forms of social organization. And uh, if you say, say that quickly, it seems obviously true. In other words, you can organize a stock market, for example, if you have telecommunications. But it's very hard to have a stock market or bid on futures, for example, if you don't have modern means of communication. What McLuhan's contribution was, was to look at the psychological side more than the social side and say, not only were social institutions changing under the use or impact of literacy, but so were people's thinking about the world and about themselves, so that they became much more conscious of their own thoughts, uh, much more subjective in their perceptions of the world, much more, rec much more acknowledgement of the subjectivity of perception and thought. David Olson has been one of a group of scholars who have followed up on the work begun by Innes and McLuhan. He thinks now that we need, in his phrase, to decenter literacy, see it as a useful but limited and specialized form of language, and see it always in its oral context. Literacy by itself is nothing without orality. Literate traditions exist and are perpetuated by virtue not just of having text, but of having talk about texts, oral discourse about written texts. The texts themselves are, are extensions of oral discourse. Literacy has to be seen in its oral milieu. Reading without talk is absolutely nothing. You have to see the relations between those two things. The implication of this for education, for example, is that it's just mischievous to put all of your resources into making children literate. You have to allow them occasions to use their oral resources and let them be orally competent. Children's resource for thinking is primarily their speech. And their competence with their speech has to be recognized and appreciated. It must never be overridden or monopolized by writing. Uh, I'll give you a simple example. Children who are called dyslexic in our culture, children who can't read, schools often assume that what they must do at all costs is teach the child to read so that the child might get three or four hours a day of practice at reading. Well, that's an inappropriate use of resources. Reading isn't that important. Reading should never be given more than, you know, an hour a day or something like that. Much more important to let the child engage in oral discourse. Let him listen to tapes. Let him listen to ideas. Let him watch video and let him talk to others. Uh, let him express himself in any way that he finds he can use to, to lay out his ideas. That's not to say that I would devalue literacy either. I would dissenter from literacy, yeah. realize literacy in its context, but I wouldn't deprecate literacy. Literacy is the competence to deal in a culture where the primary social and intellectual resources are coded in printed forms. So I, I'm all for high levels of literacy. I'm just not for subordinating 
orality to that literacy. Orality is absolutely at the core of all human competence. David Olson's idea of decentering literacy has broad implications in the field of literacy promotion. At the moment, we define everything in terms of literacy. So non-readers are illiterates, defined by what they lack. Identifying orality as the core of human competence might lead to a different evaluation. David Patanayak is the director of the Central Institute of Indian Languages in Mysore, India. He thinks that so long as literacy is seen as entirely good and illiteracy as entirely bad, literacy campaigns will only serve to stereotype more than half the population, in India's case, as second-class citizens. Literacy and orality, he says, must be seen as interrelated. What I am worried about is that there are 800 million illiterates in this world. And for those 800 million illiterates, there is nobody to speak. We are speaking as though literacy is responsible for everything, for family welfare, GNP increase, for modernization, for all kinds of things. But I don't think that is correct. I don't think that is correct. The whole question is that there are illiterates and there are literates. And we should be looking for interaction among the illiterates and the literates rather than trying to prove the superiority of one over the other. Is the assumption that literacy is somehow related to economic development and general social improvement true? You see, there is a fellow called Shankar who has uh, pointed out that there is no relationship between literacy and adoption of improved agricultural methods. He made a study. Stubbs has pointed out that uh, there is uh, no relationship between modernization and literacy. The whole question is we are eager to relate everything to literacy. Now, it is quite clear that they are not relatable directly. Moreover, you see there are all kinds of communities in the world. The Cree community, for example. The Cree people, which has a writing system but have no texts other than the Bible. They are literate, but they don't create any texts in their language. So it is extremely difficult under those circumstances to generalize and say that literacy is responsible for modernization. Now, literacy has a role to play. So has illiteracy, you see. Because the 800 million people who live to say that they have no contribution to the development of the world is absolutely ridiculous. Therefore, my plea would be to see the interaction among the literates and illiterates rather than establish the superiority of one over the other. In order to have this interaction, uh, would we have to change the way literacy promotion is taking place now? I personally am very unhappy about the way literacy promotion work is going about. In some places, 
it is seen to be merely reading and writing. Just merely force people to recognize characters, to read and write, without bothering about the, shall I say, social content of literacy. There are other places where the emphasis is on testing. We test, go on giving batteries of tests to find out what you have achieved, what you have not achieved. And this is the, both of them seem to me to be inadequate processes. Literacy without social concern is meaningless. So we must think of literacy in terms of larger perspectives rather than merely either testing or merely reading, recognizing letters. organically connected to human beings in a way that literacy is only immediately connected. And I think one of the reasons for looking to orality as a kind of um, a check to keep literacy under control is because it does therefore force us to re-embed um, the study of literacy in the context of human lives and human purposes. Suzanne de Castell of the education faculty of Simon Fraser University. Like David Patanayak, she thinks that literacy must be seen as more than just recognizing letters. It must grow out of people's purposes. But for this to happen, literacy must be chosen rather than imposed. She thinks that contemporary trends in education may work against this possibility. It's very unfortunate that the technical dimensions of education are really pushing out these other kinds of sort of more embedded human abilities that people have. And teachers are increasingly coming to believe, being obliged to believe, being encouraged to believe that there are certain skills and strategies, certain bits of knowledge uh, that they can use to allow them to educate people better. And I think that that's very mistaken. And increasingly, I think that what teachers need to begin with is a very down-to-earth, heartfelt grasp of, of human rights of people's human rights, of their human rights, of the human rights of the children, of the people that they teach. And so I would say that the social context of literacy instruction is what will shape that and make that either work or not work and make what it does either good for a person or not good for a person. And in a way, that's parallel to Freire's notion of education always being uh, connected to, in some way to political action. Paulo Freire is a Brazilian educator whose approach to literacy was shaped by his work with peasant communities in Brazil and elsewhere in Latin America. He insists on the political dimension of literacy because he believes that education is never neutral. It either liberates people or it dominates and oppresses them. One of the forms this domination can take is the textbook, a current interest of Suzanne de Castells. We're doing a book at the moment that will be coming, I expect it'll be out not until this time next year, um, with former press called uh, Language Authority and Criticism Readings on School Textbook. And what we've tried to do is to enlighten teachers, I suppose, about 
the nature of the text, the dominance of the text. The text is considered to be the curriculum. Most people, when they think of a curriculum, think of a series of texts. So historically, certainly since Luther, there's been a standardized text that has constituted the curriculum. That has been central to the notion of schooling. And we're trying to draw teachers' attention to things like the production of texts, the political economy of texts, the materiality of texts, the way that knowledge is structured in order to encode it in textual form often requires a misrepresentation of what that knowledge is when, it, when it's in the world. You know, knowledge is already an abstraction, but what it is we want people to know. And also we're trying to show them the ways in which, um, well, the history of texts, the ways in which texts have changed. There's a wonderful book that a lot of people know by Francis Fitzgerald called America Revised, you know that? And, and that's a nice document that we should probably replicate for Canada that goes through American history books and shows how American history has been rewritten with each successive generation. And so the facts change, the facts, not just the interpretations. And as there's been a sensitivity to racial minorities, suddenly, you know, black people are in history books and women are in history books. But because we always have to have a very neutral, conflict-free analysis of, say, in this case, America, uh, the blacks are, are struggling, but they're not struggling against anything, Fitzgerald points out, which is really funny. I mean, it gives a kind of... It's another kind of distortion. It makes people seem quite ridiculous. So the same thing with women. I mean, women have appeared in textbooks via domestic appliances. Their husbands, their children, and their domestic appliances. And so, you know, we want to show how how texts will, will shape and reshape the same knowledge differently. Textbooks turn knowledge into a thing. They conceal the social process in which knowledge is created and changed. Even books that don't set themselves up as neutral authorities do this to some extent, simply because their form is fixed forever. They're down in black and white. True knowledge is always a dialogue. Between two human beings talking, something can be constructed, co-constituted between them that is, first of all, greater than either of them would have intended, is more than the words will convey, and in fact is more than either of them would fully comprehend. There's a kind of a third entity created in, in dialogue. And I think that's, in some way, that would be what I would want to regard as knowledge. And when you textualize knowledge, of course, you make it monological. You take away the voices and you take away the the dynamism of it, and you try to set down one fixed thing that, that counts as knowledge. So I think, I think dialogue is, is actually terrifically important in education. Dialogue is also important because knowledge is never just in a text. It's also in the web of relationships which surround the text and in the purpose which readers bring to their encounter with the text. If the wrong man uses the right means, says a very old Chinese aphorism, then the right means works in the wrong way. Suzanne de Castel found another version of the same idea in the writing of the German thinker Hans-Georg Gadamer. He takes up that old question about the difference between philosophy and sophistry. And I like Gadamer's answer, which is um, throughout history, before Plato and since, philosophy and sophistry have always been um, indistinguishable. The only thing that differentiates philosophy from sophistry is the intention with, it, with which it's carried out. I think this is very important in the literacy field where 
um, literacy has such a mixed history. On the one hand, literacy has been used as an instrument of control, of suppression, of manipulation, of the instilling of an ideology. And on the other hand, it's been used in this illuminative sense, in this way of developing people's rights and their freedoms and and their rationality and, and their authority and giving them this kind of dignity. And so it becomes very important in the field of literacy, I think, as it does in the field of philosophy, to be very clear about the purposes with which you're doing a thing. And no matter how abstract and remote and theoretical your study, it's going to be grounded either in you know, improving conditions for human beings or however much you might deny it in a kind of a self-interested, amoral pursuit. Perhaps this explains why so many people remain illiterate after years of schooling. That when people have a reason, they learn to read. But when reading is pushed at them without a reason, they resist. I'm quite sensitive from the school context um, to what happens when people feel oppressed by something. That is to say, they don't internalize it. They resist it. They find ways um, to make a secondary accommodation to it. One particular kid stands out. who's a kid who uh, uh, was, a, was a personal friend in the neighborhood. And the school had already decided that he could not read or write. He was 15 years old, actually a brilliant artist. And they gave him his books on tape because, of course, he couldn't read. The kid was a voracious reader, absolutely voracious reader. He read uh, enormous amount of science fiction and all kinds of things. And he was perfectly literate. And, but I didn't know that until we went away once and he, he sent this postcard, this long letter. He, he wrote this long letter and I thought, well, wait a second, he's not supposed to be able to read. And I came back and realized that he'd been reading for years. He just didn't want to enter into the rituals of degradation that the school is so effective at. And I, I, I think that that's a very, very common thing. The, the tragedy is not the kids like him. The tragedy is the kids who have their own ambitions and their own abilities invalidated even in their own eyes. I mean, the kids who resist in the way that he did and make a secondary accommodation and still retain some sort of primary identity, that's great when that can happen. But sometimes, sometimes kids are devastated by that. I think there's a lot of that about. The natural human being is not a writer or a reader, but a speaker and a listener. This must be as true of us today, of all of us present here, as it was 7,000 years ago. Literacy at any stage of its development is, in terms of, of evolutionary time, a mere upstart. And to this day, it is in our spoken communication with each other in which we reveal and operate our biological inheritance. Eric Havelock addressing the Orality and Literacy Conference at the University of Toronto. He has another explanation for reading problems in schools. As a young man, Eric Havelock taught classics at the University of Toronto and then went on to head the classics departments at Harvard and then Yale. In books like Preface to Plato and The Muse Learns to Write, he traced the transformation of ancient Greece from an oral to a literate society. Eric Havelock thinks that we're all born oralists and that we can most successfully become literate in the context of that orality. 
the primary education should return, should stress more than it does, in my opinion, recitation and performance. Some of what goes on in the kindergarten should be continued through the primary school much longer than it is and with more attention. The trouble is it costs money because uh, it takes a lot of skilled teaching to get kids to uh, enact and recite, get up. I found this out when I was teaching Virgil in, in Harvard to a large class. I got them one by one to get up and memorize and recite five lines so that they could know that it was poetry. I made them memorize. They could do, do, induce any passage they wanted to, but they had to memorize the rhythm. Okay? And of course, these were grown people. Well, you can't imagine the time it took. The sheer time. And I can see why teachers skip all that now and, and uh, why it's so much quick, it's cheaper, really, to teach prose and poetry. But I would teach elocution, prosaic and poetic, to children and insist on it as part of the grade school requirements right through grade school. I would, I would, I'd impose what I would call rhetorical standards upon the curriculum. And what do you think the consequences would be if you were a dictator and could decree that this take place? Well, I think that they would then more easily become literate because I think that if you uh, start to do that, and then lead them into reading and writing, especially reading, through what they've already memorized. Not new stuff, not creative writing, all that rubbish, but what they've already memorized. I don't know what, care what it is. It uh, could be a, an address of, of Lincoln, it could be a poem by Walt Whitman, and so on and go on. Let them then learn to write that, learn their alphabet through that, what they've already elocuted clearly and above all you should train their voices we speak very badly in this country you should teach them to elocute slowly but you should also teach them to sing and I would say dance why does training in rhetoric mm -hmm. form a better ability to comprehend and to because write prose later because, on? You're, because you're living the racial experience you're, you're reenacting let us use a rather loose analogy. Are you going to deprive infants of the power to crawl and insist they walk at once? You learn to walk through crawling. That's when you learn first, learn body posture and, and balance and so on. Then you start to try. How you introduce reading on top of oralism, you wed the two together. What is going to be read must first be heard not artificially imposed by something that you never heard before. Well, um, one issue that interests me greatly is the development or the, the uh, revival of oral literacy, if you will. <laughs> right. <laughs> now we're being totally contradictory. Jan Swearingen teaches at the University of Texas in Austin. Her special study is classical rhetoric, and she's an enthusiastic admirer of Eric Havelock's views on education. Orally-based schooling that would train the ear and that would train the ability to listen and to analyze on your feet in, in the way that, that we do when we discuss things. And if that could be reinstated or um, put firmly in place at the center of the curriculum, I think many good things could result from it, and that it would ultimately improve the, the written literacy of people later on, as Havelock proposed. I think it's very 
significant that all these great Roman orators like Cicero, who still remains a, uh, an exemplar of, of both oratory and prose style, were trained to compose and deliver those wonderful pieces orally. They were not writers. They were orators. We read Cicero's works, but we forget that it was most of it, in large part, delivered orally. As well as we can tell, Plato's dialogues and other dialogues written in that same genre were not written to be printed and read. They were written in order to be performed, much like a play. So in downtown Athens one night, you and your friends would get together, and each person would take one part and read the, the Mino or the Fido or whatever, and then discuss it. So if we could begin to see that these genres that we think of so in such ironclad terms as uh, written genres were originally thought of in a very different way, just loosen up our own boundaries about genre, about texts, about what you do with texts, and hopefully I think we could also begin to get back to the, the meaning of the texts in, instead of just their structure and form. Jan Swearingen thinks that we make too much of texts themselves and too little of the meanings and purposes that they carry. She points to movements in contemporary criticism whose aim is to penetrate the inner logic of texts rather than their meaning. The extreme example of this is what is now called deconstruction, with its claim that texts refer to nothing outside themselves. When I asked Jan Swearingen the reason for this obsession with texts, she said she thought there were many, and then offered one that I found particularly intriguing. It has to do with the number of philologists and literary scholars assigned to intelligence work during World War II. They were put to work in both Britain and America as cryptographers, as analysts of codes, uh, so forth and so on. And then they went back into academia in the early 50s and became very caught up with what has loosely come to be called the New Criticism, which is very formalistic. New Criticism, which looks at genres and, and the surfaces of texts, really, is quite similar to structuralism and, and deconstructionism because the, it's all so focused on the text as fetish, if you will, I mean, as, as, a, as a thing, the thinginess of it. And it doesn't look be, beyond it or beneath it to get at things like meaning or uh, cultural value or the ethics represented in a story. In fact, that's regarded as sort of... Uh, silly, uh, like little fables for children. We're not doing that. We're doing serious stuff. We're looking at the, the logic of the text, or we're looking at the, the form of the text. And that has come to be regarded as more difficult, more complicated, more intellectually uh, powerful than doing what most people, most of their lives, uh, spend their time thinking about, why they're doing things, and what's good and what's bad, and what can we learn from a story. The, uh, the formalists don't want to ask those questions. They want to, to count numbers of words, and they want to break things down into descriptive pieces, much like scientists. So I think that the text in academic settings has become overly a fetish, and it would be nice to return to the, the content of the stories. Jan Swearingen is also concerned with how an exclusive emphasis on texts can devalue spoken language. 
she fears that standard written forms will dissolve the variety and richness of oral forms. One group that I'm particularly interested in is uh, women who have traditionally not been in the, the high textual academic disciplines of philosophy and logic and, and so forth, and classics for that matter, uh, and who have a, a rich oral culture distinct from that of men. I think they get pushed into the, the uh, melting pot, if you will, in the same way that, that many other highly oral groups do. That's just one way of cutting it. There are all kinds of categories. Blacks in the United States who are speakers of black English in being standardized into speaking standard written English lose a lot of their rich oral tradition. And that's become quite a crucial issue in the, in the states, a political issue, because many blacks, of course, say any, anybody who tells us we shouldn't learn standard English is just perpetrating yet another form of racism. So they really are suspicious, rightly, of that argument that they've got this wonderful oral culture that shouldn't be suppressed uh, or shouldn't be uh, eradicated by standardization and schooling. And they're the first to say, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> what are you going to do with this? Uh, keep us down on the farm for 200 more years, telling our nice little stories and uh, eating grits and <laughs> cornmeal. Mm -hmm. And that is a problem. And yes, there's a great richness in oral culture. But without mastering these standard forms that are so central to the, the great mammon of uh, bureaucracy, we are also disenfranchising these groups. I'd like to see a system of education that could keep both alive, you know, both and, rather than, rather than making uh, the standard, this kind of banner under which we must always sail right. to the eradication of all else. Alphabetic mental space, just like Euclidean space, has a beginning. And just like Euclidean space, might very soon be considered one extreme limit condition of possible mental spaces in which we can live. Ivan Illich, social critic, historian, and the co-author of a new book called ABC, The Alphabetization of the Western Mind. At the Orality and Literacy Conference, he directed the attention of his listeners to another dimension of literacy, its power as metaphor. I am frightened that a totally new space at this moment, built or generated by different assumptions, generators is coming into existence, with the book being replaced by the computer as the socially dominant metaphor. I remember, I mentioned it yesterday, my horror when 20 years ago at the University of Chicago, a young Marxist, Marxist, imagine, a sociologist said to me, Elish, don't believe that, that you communicate with me. I don't read you. I said, thank God I'm not a transmitter. 
But I was shocked. Now, I spoke about this recently at the University Hearing of himself described as a transmitter was Ivan Illich's first clue that the world was entering a new age, an age in which the man of letters would be out of place. Illich sees books and computers as tools, and he views tools as metaphors. They show us, by analogy, what we are like and what the world is like. It's like a book, or latterly, like a computer. He found confirmation for his view in a period he has studied as an historian, 12th century Europe. It was then that the hard-to-read manuscript of the early Middle Ages turned into something resembling our modern book, and then also that people began to see themselves and their world as book-like, even the great majority of lay people who couldn't read. To understand what's happening today, Illich thinks people should reflect on this earlier period. I would like them to look at the 12th century at the creation of what I call lay literacy, subjection to the power of the book of people who do not know how to read and write, incorporation into literate society of people who never will be able to write their name or read a word. I'm interested in the lay literate of the 12th century because I want to call attention to something not so totally different which is happening now, which is, Maurice Berman has called it beautifully, I'll use his term, moving people into the cybernetic dream. <laughs> he speaks about a teacher friend of his. Well, this teacher tells the story that she's teaching about uh, hunger in the Sahel and asks her student to study this and write papers on it. And the students come back with papers into which we have fed the appropriate data from some database in which the computer has organized for them. And one of them, Frank, stays after class, all enthusiastic about the horrible things he has found about the Sahel. So she asks him, Frank, what does this mean to you? And Frank becomes silent. He has assembled the correct data. He hasn't written it. It doesn't come from his heart. He's composed. He's become a text composer himself. Increasingly, people speak to me about their system, which can't take it. We talk to me about their desire to become people who do not communicate only on one channel, but multi-channel communication. I'm horrified. And they don't understand why, when I tell them, I don't want to communicate with you. When they tell me, I've received so many data from you. Your lecture was beautifully programmed. You have communicated so much to me. I tell them a four-letter word. And I'm deeply depressed. I had hoped to speak with them, to have a conversation. And so I tried then to explain to them, just as in the Middle Ages, the book became a socially dominant metaphor. For 95% of, of people who were lay and couldn't read or write, and yet knew that they had a conscience, knew that they could read that conscience, 
knew that God kept accounts on them, knew that there was an accounting kept for purgatory. So now the computer has become, the text composer has become a socially dominant metaphor by which people actually reduce speech to communication themselves to a system, their individuality into the particular programming out of very complex, not yet explored databases into a moment on the world screen. The fact that people are actually beginning to think of themselves in this way is confirmed by Ivan Illich's co-author, Barry Sanders. He teaches at Pitzer College in Claremont, California, and says that he sees it all the time in his students. Not only does the information and the knowledge no, lo no longer reside in them, but it's over someplace in some kind of machine that has a memory, that has a brain, that has a language, with which I interface and out of which I retrieve some information if I know, in fact, how to access it. And that's just the way students are talking to me about me now. They expect my memory, I think in many cases, to be like the memory of a machine. Without very much feeling, um, they expect to retrieve information, they expect to interface with me. I don't know if this is the case in Canada, but in the United States, in any school now worth its voltage, its salt, <laughs> um, it's bites. It's bites. Each room in the dormitory in the college has a machine, a computer for a student. Plus there are computer labs. Plus for, any, for every professor who wants to own um, his or her own Macintosh and have a bite of the new Apple, there is, in fact, low-cost, low-interest loans that you can pay back over a period of 10 years to buy a machine. Barry Sanders thinks that the computerization of education has frightening implications. What's at stake, he says, is as basic as what we think we are. The first part of ABC book is about the historical inventions that come along with alphabetization of, of people. It includes fundamental things, as fundamental as the notion of self, right? kind of ref beginnings of a reflective self in which I can actually think about what I was yesterday and the day before and give some shape and direction, in fact, to my life is a function of literacy. It's, in fact, having, I think, a kind of recorded text inside oneself in which I keep a record of who I am and what I'm doing. That's just the act of writing and making permanent um, notions of script. That's no longer the case in writing on a machine. I mean, the, the idea of revising, for instance, just take for an immediate instance, um, is very much different on a machine. Once I revise on a machine, what happens to the old sentence? It goes into the ether. It's gone. It's finished. It's as if it did not exist at all and erased. And I know that for my own self, when in fact I write with a pen and a piece of paper, um, I keep old drafts, for instance, and I don't toss them away. And I have them. Not only do I have them in this wastebasket, but I know that they're in fact part of me and part of my kind of internal revision when in fact I'm writing a text. And I know that that process is in fact part of me when I'm revising my own being, my own sense of internal text. That, that's radically different.
when in fact you're writing on a machine. Not everyone at the Orality and Literacy Conference shared Sanders and Illich's concern about the computer. Derek de Kirchhoff, for example, thinks that the real enemy of literacy is not the computer, but the television. De Kirchhoff is the co-director of the McLuhan program at the University of Toronto. Basically, since the invention of electricity, the whole patient elaboration of personal control over one's body and over one's senses and over one's meanings and, and, and uh, logic is being reversed by such thing as radio and television and by media that do not go to your head but go to your body. TV talks to your body. It doesn't talk to your head. What there is happening on the television set is a flooding of images. There is a charge of a light brigade, as uh, McLuhan called it. There is the very best image of television you find in the, the Who's film, uh, Tommy, when uh, Anne Margaret is sitting in the, on, the, on a white bed in a white room in a white dress, and she's watching television and she's bored, and suddenly, uh, in the middle of her boredom, the stuff comes out of the TV set, and the, the, that white furry area is filled with pork and beans and with champagne and with turtle chocolate and it all messes up in the most gushy, washy, disgusting mess. It's wonderful because that's exactly what TV is. TV has been doing that to us for the last two generations almost. And radio was doing something similar before. What happens is that you are your own master in the world of writing and reading. You cease to be your own master because your body becomes the communicating system with the outside world when it is not controlled by reading. That is what Illich is worried about. But I'm not sure that Illich knows how deep that goes. Illich is worried about the elimination of interiority by computer. And I believe that he is wrong there. And I'll tell you why. Because electronic media definitely threaten books and threaten the interiority of one's personal control over language. Unquestionably. But computers of all the electronic media are the most gracious towards the book that we have invented yet. Very gracious. Computer enable you to talk back to your television set. A computer is a TV set to which you tell what you want to do. And you have to remember that all the time. <laughs> when you read, you do the scanning. When you watch television, TV does the scanning. When you use a computer, there is a mutual inter-scanning going on between what the computer cathode ray tube is doing to you and what you are doing with your keyboard and your hands scanning and reading the stuff. You have a mutual control of, of, the, of the information processing interaction. We're back to a kind of a strange oral situation where the discourse is in between. We have married electricity and literacy. Not at all split them forever and have them in a tug-of-war situation. And I don't see a divorce possible at this point. I see us, culturally, as capable both of an enormous reach, a global reach, because of our electronic te technologies, and a personal, private, interiorized identity all at once. We now can have our cake and eat it. It's an attractive, optimistic vision. But I'm not sure that it will persuade Sanders and Illich, because I'm not sure that they're talking about exactly the same thing. To Kirchhoff, in the McLuhan tradition, is talking about media as ways of processing information, ways which have specific effects on our thinking. Illich and Sanders are talking about the book and the computer as what we might call a world image, a generator of meanings, Illich also says. They're not denying that literacy will survive via the computer, 
They're saying that its social significance will change decisively. Already has. It's an ambiguous note to end tonight's program, but I think appropriate, since what I've been talking about is how literacy changes its meaning with its context. I don't honestly know whether Sanders and Illich are right, though I still stubbornly write with pen and paper myself, but I am convinced of what Suzanne de Castell said earlier, that literacy must always be considered in relation to human lives and human purposes. This is the standard by which I would judge possible relationships to the computer and the book, and this is the light in which I think we should evaluate our periodic panics about illiteracy. Literacy is only as good as the purposes we have for it, and promoting it will make no difference without such purposes. On Ideas Tonight, Orality and Literacy, Part 3. The program was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations by Ray Falsick, Tim Lorimer, and Lon Tulk. Production assistance by Gail Brownell and Laurie Clayton. Producer, Sarah Walsh. We've prepared a printed transcript of this three-part series. It costs $7, and you can get a copy by writing to CBC Enterprises, Literacy, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Please enclose a cheque or money order for $7, and do remember delivery takes about eight weeks. We've also prepared a reading list, and it's free. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Thank you.